2 Kings chapter 5. If you're a visitor with us or, or you don't own a Bible of your own, please see the, the little ledge underneath the chair in front of you. There should be a black hardback copy of the ESV Bible. That's our gift to you today. We'd like you to take that home and put your name in it and read it. 5 verses 1 through 5. You know, one of the things that most every single person can agree upon is that human suffering is inevitable. <coughs> suffering doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It just takes and it takes and it takes, but we keep living anyway. Christians have more power to stop the sun from rising tomorrow than they do to prevent suffering today. To be human is to suffer. That we cannot change. But the author of the book of Kings shows us that how we suffer gives us the ability to change the course of history. So go ahead and read with me these words that were inspired by Ruth 5. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. Oh, this guy's got it going on, doesn't he? But he was a leper. Now, the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Both the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. This is the word of our Lord. Over 10 years ago, a movie that was once thought to be released directly to video swept the nation. On its opening day in North America, it grossed $9.4 million, snagging the most successful opening day for a Super Bowl weekend. Taken was a pop culture phenomenon. And it wasn't long before TV show hosts, talk show hosts, late night comedians, and yes, even some of your kids' cartoons to start parodying Liam Neeson's epic scene where he's on the phone talking about a very particular set of skills that he has. And the movie Taken, a 17-year-old girl, an American girl, is kidnapped while on a vacation to Paris. She's abducted from her hotel room by a group of human traffickers looking to shop her around for top dollar. While she was in the process, who just so happened to be a former CIA operative, and he gave her a few instructions on how to leave a bread trail, if you will, so that he might be able to rescue her away from her suffering. And one of the most harrowing scenes of the movie, the one that will grip me until the day I die, is where the dad is talking to his daughter and he says, they're going to take you. And then hearing her scream when they do, I get it's a movie, but I'm a softie. It hurts. It hurts. Now, 
suffering is definitely going to happen for us. But before suffering comes, we have a few things that we might want to keep in mind. They say that if you're not currently suffering, you're either just finishing up a season of, season of suffering or you're on your way in. And, and suffering really does take the form of slavery and kidnapping as frequently as it does persecution and divorce. Suffering is going to take you. But you know, God gives us the grace to respond in such a way that confuses the world and honors himself. And as we have the author of the book of Kings, he's recording roughly 400 years of Israel's history. He's very intentional in the details he captures because space is limited. So we get these small details for a very specific reason. He's writing to those in exile, and the Holy Spirit's making sure that we pay attention as well. Because you see, as Christians, we need to know what it means and what it looks like to suffer well. What a timeless principle that is, to suffer well. Now, for us to really understand this, we need to dive into verse 2, where we see that this little Israelite girl who, spoiler alert, is a very instrumental part of Naaman's eventual healing. How she was kidnapped and forced into slavery. The text doesn't give you more details because, again, God gives us just enough for us to know. But think about what that must have looked like. Do you think they just knocked up and showed up on the door and said, hey, I'll, I need to buy your daughter because I'm in, I'm in need of some additional housework? No. They likely slaughtered her family and ripped her away in the middle of the night, taking her away from everyone and everything she's ever known. And she didn't have anyone she could call with a particular set of skills to come rescue her. No one was going to come rescue her from her captors and end her suffering. But the Bible does record how she suffered well, even though she was serving the enemy, intent, compassionate, and confident in the midst of our suffering. But first we see that those who suffer well are content. The little girl didn't run or fight. She didn't hide. Now, the biblical author paints this really magnanimous picture of Naaman. He is a mighty man of valor. God used him to gain victory over Israel. He is well-known, well-respected, and well-accomplished. This guy, save for the leprosy part, is a man's man. He's got what everybody else desires. And then, what do we find out about the little girl? She's a foreigner, she's a slave, and if it couldn't be bad enough already, she's female. And ladies, if you know how the world has treated you, especially in the Middle East throughout history, it really doesn't get much worse than that. She's a foreign female slave. We kind of have this mouse and king image here. It's nice how that's there. I bet, I bet Aesop copied it. So we have, on one hand, this mighty man of valor. On the other hand, we have this small, timid, meek little girl. And, and, and modest as her situation in life may have been before she was kidnapped, everything she had ever hoped or dreamed of has been dashed to pieces. Her goal of one day growing up and marrying a godly young man and raising godly young kids, that's gone. 
She is now relegated to being a piece of property for the man responsible. He was and is the captain of the king of the army. You know he's responsible, and she's serving him. But she doesn't run. She doesn't fight. She doesn't hide. She doesn't poison his food. And I know a lot of you, if you're like me, that might have been where your first thought was. I might be too small to fight you, but I can do some backdoor shady stuff, and I will get out of this. I will find a way. But, but think about slavery in that time. Maybe slavery throughout any time. Slaves are expendable. Think about it for just a minute. If this little girl had started back-talking, started being defiant or rebellious, started throwing temper tantrums and really just an all-around nuisance, do you think they'd keep her around? No. No, not at all. Slaves were a dime a dozen, so to speak. They certainly would not have kept her around because she would have been more hassle than she was worth. So the fact that she remained content in her suffering allows us to see how God's going to use her here. Now, she's hearing and seeing the effects of Naaman's leprosy. And she's having a conversation with her mistress. Can find healing with the prophet of God. She doesn't bat an eye. She trusts the little girl. She trusts the little girl so much that she goes to her husband, a very powerful man. And he trusts his wife and the little girl so much that he goes to the king. All on the word of a foreign little slave girl. That doesn't just happen if you're a malcontent. That doesn't happen if you've got a rant every day for how life is so unfair. That doesn't happen if you're trying to lash out and and do things that try to get even with people. This relationship, this trust that they have is only found on a relationship that was forged in the waters of deep contentment. When we're in the valley... And it seems like life just couldn't give us a break even if we paid for it. Our thoughts tend to go inward, right? We don't often think about other people and their problems. We solely focus on ourselves. Our thinking gets so minuscule and so self-centered. And we start to tell ourselves a few lies. If only I had just this one thing. If I, if I had to suffer in a different way or if I had this one extra creature comfort, then suffering wouldn't be so bad. If, if only my circumstances were just a little bit different, then I could take what the Lord has given me. The problem is, though, that's not really contentment, is it? I like how one pastor put it. He said, independent of circumstances or conditions or surroundings. It's an expression of being satisfied. For this little girl, it didn't matter that her parents had possibly been murdered. It didn't matter that she was now property of the enemy. It didn't matter that she was going to live a life of suffering and servitude. What mattered is that she was content in her God. In the 1700s, an English pastor, Dr. Stonehouse, was traveling through England, fearful of the appearance of the sky. And he happened upon a shepherd, and he asked him what sort of weather it might be the next day. And the shepherd replied, it'll be such weather as pleases me. It's interesting. So the pastor asked him, now how can that be? How can that be? Because, replied the shepherd, it'll be as such weather as pleases God, and whatever pleases God always pleases me. 
How cool would it be if we could say that honestly? How wonderful would our testimony be to the world if we could say that day in and day out? That I'm going to take whatever God gives me. That whatever he has planned and purposed for my own good, I'm going to be okay with it. When we enter a time of suffering, our first thought ought not to be how to run from it, how to fight it, how to outsmart it, how to get out of this situation. Our first thought ought to be, how can I obey God in this situation? What is he trying to teach me? I mean, you don't take cookies out of the oven before they're done. Why would you pull yourself out of suffering before God's done with you? There's no running from suffering. Can you imagine singing, it is well with my soul after hearing a tragic diagnosis from the doctor? Some of you, I know this hits far too close to home this week especially. What about a time when you're fine but your wife isn't? She's terminal. There's no beating this. There's no running from this because there is no cure. She won't make it to Christmas. Try explaining that one to the kids. Daddy, why are we getting the Christmas tree out? Why are we getting presents now? We just got back to school. Because you know you're trying to get all of those memories before she's gone. Suffering hits us, not just at the hospital or the doctor's office. Feel this pain. You get that one boss, and I know we all think our bosses are terrible, and admittedly, maybe I shouldn't say that, but we all know that our bosses could be a little nicer. But some of you have in the past or will in the future have one of those bosses who constantly take credit for your work. They give you the crummiest tasks. They work you like a dog. They take pot shots at your faith. They exclude you, and you're always the last to find out about anything. And you come in day after day, put your nose to the grindstone, and nothing you do is ever good enough. How are you supposed to respond in a situation like that where even right now your stomach is churning at the thought of going into work on Tuesday? Because this person is unreasonable. They're making my life a living hell. I hate going into work. Oh, and that comment about losing my wife, not cool. Not cool because we almost did. Praise God, she's still here. Some of these real world things, they hit us and they scare us. Suffering comes for us all. But we can ask God to help us be content. We can ask him to help us to be satisfied, to be okay with whatever he deems good for us. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we don't have to run. We don't have to outthink it. We don't have to outsmart it. We just have to outlast it. Don't let these momentary afflictions errors with the Son of God. To trust God completely despite everything that's going on in your world today. That is how to suffer well. But it's not just being content, it's also being compassionate. Those who suffer well are compassionate. Take a look at verse 3. Those who suffer well are compassionate. The little girl here, she steps up and she speaks out. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with a prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Now, why would she go and say something like that? Doesn't she know that this guy is responsible? Doesn't she know that he's the reason she has no freedom? 
Well, if you think about it, we know she's a little girl from Israel. And if she's aware of the prophet of God and confident in his power, she's probably heard a thing or two from the prophets in the past. The ones who heard from God on high and told the Israelite people how to deal with enemies. So if you were to take a quick look at Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5, you would read this. If you meet your enemy's ox and his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You see, these animals were needed for all sorts of things around the farm. Not only is this how they put food in their belly and clothes on their back, that's how they stayed afloat. This was their culture, a very agricultural society. People are using these animals not just for travel, but to keep the farm afloat. So even if he's your enemy, even if you hate him, even if he is the chairman or chairwoman of the homeowners association, even if they're complaining about your lack of landscaping, even if they play their music way too loud on the weekends, even if they don't understand what a shot collar is for, you just can't take advantage of your enemy's misfortune. Enemies need to be treated decently. So this little girl, she didn't treat him poorly. See, the author of, of the book of Kings, he, again, space is limited, right? So he's only sharing a few small details for us, and then the Holy Spirit helps us piece together the rest. We don't read of this little girl saying, ha, serves you right. You stole me, you got leprosy. That's what you get, you jerk. It doesn't say, ha, 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 you're going to die soon. Like, she's not joyfully boasting in the fact that this man is suffering. She doesn't ignore his suffering either. You see, because true love has the eyes to see the needs of others. And with a heart full of compassion, she steps up and she speaks out, knowing that she risks her captor's wrath and potential beatings for su suggesting something as foolish as a man of God. But she shares just the right time. This young, nameless Israelite girl is placed in his care, in his service. And, and just to be clear, this isn't some Old Testament version of Stockholm Syndrome. This is pure, 100% unadulterated compassion that she has for Naaman. She's genuinely interested in his well-being. Her desire is for the leper to be healed. And, and we know this because Naaman knew this. We know this because Naaman knew this. There is not a guy who is that elevated in society who's going to just run off with such goods and treasures to try to bribe somebody or pay tribute to somebody for potential healing. Was he desperate? Absolutely. Would he have tried anything? Yes, absolutely. I'm not denying that. But think about this for a minute. If he had suspected that he was being set up for a trap, would he have gone? No. He would much rather suffer with leprosy and get all of the years out of that he can as opposed to dying in the next month when he goes into enemy territory. He knew he wasn't being set up. He knew that there was no maliciousness, nothing nefarious about this arrangement. The girl just simply wanted her master to be healed. What would you have done? What would your thoughts have been? Picture it for a minute. You're kidnapped as a child. Your parents and family likely slaughtered. You're going to spend your days as a slave. And your captor 
has leprosy. Now, if you're honest with yourself, and I've been thinking about this all week, and no amount of reading my Bible has made me a better person on this one. I wouldn't do what she did. I should have done what she would have done, but I, I just, I couldn't. I'm too fallen. We are, most of us, too fallen. We, we would have had a different idea. We would have certainly held out on her or on him. But then the Holy Spirit convicts us, and we have to ask ourselves, how bad do you have to hate someone to withhold from them cure, a cure? How bad do you have to want to see somebody else suffer? How much vitriol and venom do you have in your own veins to intentionally watch someone else wrestle for all of their days with cracked and broken skin, maybe open, oozing sores? How bad do you have to hate someone? How selfish do you have to be to withhold all of that wonderful information about where the cure is? But then we also wrestle with the fact that she was kidnapped. And in our human way of thinking, she would have been totally justified to say he does not deserve to be healed. I don't want him to feel better. I want him to suffer for everything he's done to me. Don't you know my pain? And on his dying day before he breathes his last, I want to let him know that I knew he could have been cured the whole time and conveniently chose not to tell him because I want him to feel that pain. That's where a lot of our fleshly thoughts go when other people are suffering if they've wronged us. But come on, sis. You know that playing God isn't going to work out. That's not a good idea. Let's leave that to Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, and you can, you can really turn to just about any page in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, anywhere in the Gospels, and you're likely to fall upon a scene or a snapshot in Jesus' life where he is showing compassion for his fellow man. We've got the Son of God here in human form. Never had a bad thought, never uttered a bad word under his breath, let alone committed a crime, and yet he's unjustly arrested, he's wrongfully accused, and he's, oh man, he's, he's crucified unlawfully. And he endures the agony of the flogging and the beating and the humiliation. And then he's walked through the dusty streets of Golgotha. And then they pierce his hands with nails to the cross. And as he's sitting there and people are watching and they're marveling and they are mocking and they're casting lots for his clothes to fulfill yet another prophecy. And you know what our Savior does? With outstretched arms, he prays to his Father in heaven, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's compassion. For those of us in this room that would be identified with the name of Jesus, that would dare to be called by his name, not only do we know we need to live like Jesus, but we also have to be ready to suffer like Jesus as well. Believers, we are called to be godly and holy like he is holy. We need to suffer well the way he suffered well. You might be asking, Jason, what does it look like to suffer well? It's right here. You suffer well by wanting what's best for your enemy, wanting them to be healed, wanting to save them the same suffering that you're going through. It's wanting them to be forgiven for all of the wrongs that they've done to you. It's, it's not letting the acclamations towards God and how good he is it's finding the courage to speak about God's goodness even in the midst of the storm. To suffer well 
means to be compassionate and love your enemy. Suffering well means that our life is marked by contentment and compassion. But those who suffer well are also confident. In what? In themselves? No. They're confident in the goodness and the sovereignty of our great God. Those who suffer well are confident. Verse 3, take a look. This verse highlights the captive's confidence during her suffering as she shouts, He would cure him of his leprosy. So not only have the events that led up to this situation not robbed her of her joy, they've not jaded her, they've not made her skeptical of her good God, but in fact, they've encouraged her, they've empowered her. She's proselytizing for his prophet. She's the guy showing up on the door saying, hey, have you heard of Jesus Christ? Okay, maybe not that guy, but she's there and she's asking, essentially, for anyone that would listen, do you want to know where to find him? Because I know where the healing's at. Go, he would heal you of your leprosy. Surely the God who can part the Red Sea, the God who can bring life to dead wombs, the God who can send fire down from heaven and light up the sacrifice of the leprosy of Naaman. But this little girl's faith was not unfounded. It was not misplaced at all. She knows in whom she's believed. And she can't help but give voice to what she knows about her God. She knows that hers is a God of great power, real power, great healing, real healing, the sort of thing you're not going to find in Samaria or Syria. But you have to wonder, though, if she's so confident, so adamant that her God can heal and rescue her from her suffering and end her servitude. Is Mrs. Naaman going to ask her, silly child, tricks are for kids. How have you still kept such confidence that your God can heal when he couldn't even stop your parents from being killed and us stealing you in the middle of the night? Come on, get out of here with your childish nonsense. Did, did fear ever creep in her little mind? They're going to ask me questions. They're going to mock me. I don't have answers for how I know this. I mean, sure, I can say something, but it's not going to impress them. Did, did she ever hesitate to share that the prophet of God had the power of God and can heal because of the spirit of God? A lot of times we don't step up and speak out. We don't show that compassion or that confidence because we're fearful. Because people are going to ask us hard questions that we don't have answers to. Did she ever falter? Did she ever second guess herself? The truth is, we don't know. What we do know is, is that at the exact right time, this little Israelite girl spoke up with the confidence of a king and declared boldly that her God holds the healing. And it is not to be found anywhere else. In 370 A.D., Basil of Caesarea became the bishop. And at that time, Emperor Valens was promoting and propagating the doctrine of Arianism. And for those of you who have a bit of church history might know, Arianism denies the deity of Jesus Christ. And Valens com commanded the praetorian to go to Basil and find out why he won't bow, why he won't budge in his convictions. And they offer him an ultimatum. Recant or resign. 
recant or resign. Folks, listen up. There is more where that came from in the years to come. Before you're done. Basil didn't budge. He remained confident in his Lord. He remained solid on his doctrine. And so he was summoned and he was interrogated about why he wouldn't give in to the emperor's wishes. And essentially it all boils down to Basil saying, I've got to serve God and not man. And you can imagine about how well that played out for him. People are very unhappy if you don't bend to their wishes. And so he was threatened with confiscation, exile, torture, and even death. He's staring down the barrel because he won't budge on his convictions of God. And, and I can imagine the smirk on his face when he, when he gets ready to give his response. Calm, cool, resolute, with just a hint of snark and sarcasm for good measure. And he says, what are such threats to me? Really? What are such threats to me? Now, I can also imagine the look on the guy who's interviewing him and questioning him. He's bewildered. He's astonished. Like, how dare you? Like, that's a pretty, whew, that's, that's a pretty big statement there. And Basil responds, you know, you, you must have never met a Christian who found the same conduct. You see, when things of God are involved, we overlook all else and fix our eyes only on him. And we rather glory in fire and sword, torture and prison in such case. Therefore, threaten, insult me as you will. Tell the emperor that nothing shall induce me to disobey my master or to assent to heretical and an impious creed. You see, persecution and suffering were no match for Basil's confidence in his God. Suffering is coming for you. Suffering comes for all of us. And it might be as blatant as it was for Basil, or it might come as a thief in the night as it did for the little girl in Israel. But it doesn't automatically get a win against Christians. You hear me? Suffering doesn't automatically get a win against us. And it's not because we fight or run or hide. It's not because we're bigger, stronger, smarter, faster. It's because we serve a great God, and our confidence in Him does not have to shake. Our confidence in Him can be one that enables us to shout from the mountaintops, Our God is good. He has not forsaken us. In fact, my God is with me through the fiery trials. Christian, is your life a mess right now? Is your life a mess right now? Are your finances in shambles? You're losing sleep. Addiction that you think you're doing a pretty good job of hiding from the rest of us, from even those in your own household. Brother and sister, do you ever wonder why you're never satisfied? No matter how much you make it work, no matter what title you get in the office, no matter what new shiny thing comes from Amazon tomorrow, you still keep chasing. You're still not satisfied. You still don't have enough. You still feel Something missing? I want you to remember that God is with us through all of our brokenness and our suffering. All of our trials. All of the things that keep us up at night. All of the things that make us fear. He is with us in those moments. Remember that Christ is on the throne. You guys, this is great news. 
He's still on the throne. He is still in control. Everything that happens to us or through us is for us, for our own good, so that we might look suffering dead in the eye and say, I'm a child of God. I'm not going to recant. I'm not going to bend the knee. I'm going to boldly proclaim. I'm going to keep proclaiming that Christ is king. I'm going to keep my biblical convictions. I don't care what it's going to cost me. I don't care if my life is a little bit easier. If I Christ is king and Lord of my life. The author of the book of Kings, like I said, records about 400 years of history. The lowest ebb of Israel's national history is in the book of Kings, first and second. And he made sure to give us five verses with a ton of detail. That was a joke because we don't get a whole lot. Come on. Thank you. You don't know. I don't want your pity laugh. I don't want your pity laugh. There is not a lot of detail here, but there's a ton of information to be gleaned. We see this little girl being awesome, right? She is suffering well. She's confident. She's compassionate. And she's content. She is not the hero of the story. The hero of the, sir, of the story is our suffering servant, Jesus of Nazareth. This little girl, though, is a foreshadow of that suffering servant because like Jesus would do in the Gospels, she suffered well. And she was content despite all of the circumstances, despite her world being violently turned upside down. She was content that God had a plan. Like Jesus would do in the Gospels, this little girl remained compassionate. She wanted the healing of her master. And Jesus on the cross prayed to his father, forgive them. And like Jesus would do in the Gospels, that little girl was confident. Would that my Lord were with the prophet, he would heal you of your leprosy. Her plea wasn't, woe is me, life's so unfair. She didn't start another Facebook rant. Well, the world doesn't need more of that. The world needs more Christians who suffer well. She was a very powerless child, but she served a very powerful God. So Christian, I urge you, don't run from your suffering. Don't hide from your suffering. Don't try to outsmart your suffering. Suffer well. Don't grow weary. Don't fall under the burdens for the Bible tells us for these momentary afflictions, these light momentary afflictions are preparing us for a weight of glory beyond all compassion. Christians, we're called to suffer faithfully. We're called to endure. We are called to suffer well. We have to be devoted in our duress. And we do this because that's who we are. We're Christians. This is what we do. And I know that life's course is going to take you through plenty, plenty of trying times. And for some of you, you're already there. But I cannot encourage you enough to trust the Spirit of God. He is at work in us and in our suffering. Let's pray. Our Father God, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for that little girl being a foreshadow of... Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. That right there is the epitome of a suffering servant. One who suffered well. Lord, if, if anyone ever had the moral high ground or or the, the righteous indignation to withhold blessings to people because they were doing wrong to him, he would have been it. But Lord, Jesus gives us the perfect example as someone who is confident in your plan, who's compassionate to the fellow man. And Lord, they're content, just like he was content. Lord, you've given us that example. I pray, Lord, 
that as you prepare us for suffering in the future, that this message would penetrate our hearts and we would have a newfound ability in your power and your spirit to endure the suffering well. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.